0: So our text this morning, as Hans said, is 1 Timothy 3, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So you can go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. And as many of you know, I'm a a dad myself. I have two kids. uh, We're expecting our third here at the end of the month. And in the years since my daughter has been born, uh, there's been nothing like it. I've exponentially realized the need for the Spirit to work in me and in my selfish heart. It was awesome for them to invite me to preach on such an emotional <laughs> Sunday. I thought this was Father's Day, April Fools. I don't know what's going on. But there's nothing like seeing the internal and external chaos of your child throwing a fit to realize the total depravity of the human soul <laughs> and the universal need for a savior. Now, this might be a shock to some of you, but in addition to cereal, my kids and I love Taco Bell. And I'd say that my kids are kind of up there on the spiciness scale. If I had to categorize them by Taco Bell sauce packets, I'd say they're somewhere between hot and fire, somewhere in there. They can occasionally peek into the Diablo range, though. And one of the things that my wife and I have tried to impress upon our children is that their words matter, and their emotions are gifts from God. But in order to utilize those gifts, they need to have a right understanding of God's grace to help them bring those words and emotions under control. And I was reminded of this as I visited a local Taco Bell this week. (laughs) So I came up to the drive-thru and I ordered my usual, two cheesy bean and rice burritos grilled, a Baja Blast and a Cinnamon twisters. for those of you who are wondering, And I didn't think that this particular order would be a big deal, because I had ordered the same order from this particular Taco Bell dozens of times before. And I'm not sure what was going on on this day, but as I came to the window, this is a funny story, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. (laughs) As I came to the window, there was a big controversy over whether or not this particular Taco Bell location served Cinnamon Twists. So I pulled up to the window and I could see that the window attendant was yelling at the manager and the manager was yelling back at the window attendant. There was some pushing and shoving, money was being thrown, and it was that point I knew I was going to have to step inside the restaurant to intervene. <laughs> Dad, tell sis, we don't serve Cinnamon Twistles here anymore. She can't <laughs> charge you for those. Ev. Ev, we have cinnamon twisters. This is Taco Bell. We always have cinnamon twisters. No, sis, you're not the boss. We don't serve those here anymore. And what was once an opportunity for God's good order to be on display was turned instead to an opportunity for division and strife. And as the human resources director of this particular Taco Bell, it became apparent to me that I still have lots of work to do and instruction in love and holiness. And much like the church in Ephesus, an incorrectly held belief led to a lack of love and eventually led to the need for a direct intervention so that God's good order might be preserved. And in today's text, we pick up on the theme of the authority of the local church in protecting the gospel and the faithful stewardship or the good order of the gospel that Hans introduced last week. So the title of today's sermon is The Good Order of the Gospel, The Good Order of the of the gospel. And as we'll see today, the good order of the gospel allows us to walk in love with one another because of the faith that has been given to us by God. And since this is just the second week, let me offer just a very brief historical context. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent to the Gentiles to bring the truth of the gospel to them, has left one of his understudies, Timothy, in Ephesus to shepherd this church there. And this letter is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. So by design, it was meant to be read all in one sitting. And my encouragement to you guys this week as you do your study is to sit down and read through the whole thing from start to finish. And do it every week as we study through this this letter. Doing this will help you to contextualize the Sunday messages as we study through. And I'm thankful for God's word this morning because I know that by the Holy Spirit, it will produce good fruit in those of us that are listening. Amen. Thank you. So let's read through our text this morning. 1 Timothy 3, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It says this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. The issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So let's look back just to verses 3 and 4 here. In verse 3, we see that Paul urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus so that he could command certain persons to stop spreading heresies in the church. And I want to define what I think Paul means here by heresies. A heresy is anything other than the true gospel of Christ as outlined in the scripture. Any different doctrine than that which was given by Christ or the apostles to his church. Now, one important thing to see here from the text is that heresy is not just beliefs. It's heretical beliefs that were leading people to act incorrectly. So when Paul says certain persons swerving from these heresies, false teachings, he's referring both to the teachings and the actions that are contrary to and against the truth of God's word as outlined in Scripture. And these certain people in Ephesus, in their devotion to the myths and genealogies, they had swerved. They were practicing something other than the true gospel message. And the reputation and purity of God's church was at stake. And some commentators have called this problem that Paul is writing to Timothy, the Ephesian heresy, the Ephesian heresy. And so Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him in his campaign against this heretical faction inside the church. And here's the first point. The good order of the gospel keeps us in right belief about God. The good order of the gospel keeps us in right belief about God. Most Bible scholars agree that the heresies being taught in Ephesus were combining elements of Jewish mysticism and asceticism and the cult religions that were prevalent in Ephesus. And what seems to be happening here is that Timothy is dealing with cultural and religious syncretism. Syncretism is when religion and culture have ideas and practices that are so synced up with each other that they're indistinguishable. And as a church, I'm talking about both the big C church globally and the little C church here locally at Mission Fellowship. As a church, we can get caught in syncretism When we let heresies creep in. We can get caught in syncretism when we don't trust the sufficiency of God's word and the authority of the local church. God and his word should be our ultimate authority. And so then, the way that we live our lives rightly flows down from the authority of the Bible. And this is a great anchor for our faith no matter which way the wind is blowing politically, no matter what is in vogue culturally, the truth of God's word will remain steadfast. It will remain firm, and like Ryan likes to say, it will guide us between here and eternity on a path that is fraught with danger. But if the Bible is not our ultimate authority, if God's word is downstream of our culture, if we hold this up and we look at it Through our cultural lens, the Bible becomes subject to our culture's values and ideas. The whims of our culture become our authority, not the Word of God. And then the culture can manipulate and cherry-pick God's Word to make it meet its own goals. And then if God's Word is subject to the culture, its absolute truth and authority are undermined. And the entire Bible itself becomes factually, morally, and truthfully relative. Let's play this out one step further. If we've misordered our authority, like Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, if we go against God's good order and we allow the truth of the Bible to be subject to culture, and if that culture happens to be hyper-individualistic, like it is here in the United States, like it is specifically here in the great Pacific Northwest, then the truth of the Bible becomes subject not just to the culture at large, but to the individual. An absolute truth now lies inside the individual. All moral standards are relative, and the Bible is practically useful only as a therapeutic. If I can use the Bible to make myself feel good, or to make my enemies feel bad, then I'll do it no matter how out of context I have to take it, no matter how many mental mental gymnastics I have to do to get there. And if it's not useful for that end, forget it. It's not the boss of me. And inside the church, there is no questioning an individual's reading and application of the Bible. The authority of the congregation and the elders of the local church is completely undermined and dismissed, especially when well, the Holy Spirit told me, is invoked as justification. But this is where we find ourselves in 2021. With some of our churches so synced up with our nationalistic culture that we have Bibles that are being printed with the Pledge of Allegiance, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and a handwritten chorus of, I quote, The most recognized patriotic anthem in the United States. God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood. These are being printed side by side with the Holy Word of God, as if they were somehow equal to God's Word, as if they were a product of divine inspiration, as if they were equally authoritative in shaping Christian life. In this country, we think so highly of our own merit and our own authority, and so little of God's authority, that we've seen fit to include the laws of men with the laws of the omnipotent, holy, and everlasting Creator God. We are awarded no points, and may God have mercy on our souls. And this is how we've arrived in 2021 with churches so synced up with our hypersexualized culture. That we are throwing out 2,000 years of orthodox doctrine, grounded in the good order founded in Genesis, in God's good ordered creation, just throwing it out the window. Simply because our culture has told people we should just do whatever makes us feel happy. If it feels good, we should do it. If it feels hard, if it feels difficult, you're not doing it right. simply because calling Christians to submit their sexuality to the authority of God's word is too uncomfortable. And as a church, we are too cowardly to lovingly proclaim to the world and warn them by our sound doctrine, by the good order of the gospel, that certain people, by swerving from these, are on a path that only leads to death and destruction. And I'm not talking about the culture here, or to the culture. I'm talking to the church, individuals, organizations that would profess Christ. Paul wasn't talking to Timothy about Ephesus. He was talking about members inside Timothy's church. And brothers and sisters, are there ways you have allowed culture to be your authority instead of the word of God and his church? Is there ways you've allowed culture to be your authority instead of the word of God and his church? How can we grow in holding one another accountable to keep the word of God and his church as our authority? As members of one body, it is all of our responsibility to protect the gospel witness by humbly submitting to one another, humbly submitting to the authority of God's word and his church. And we can see that when we let heresies creep into our churches, we are in essence telling God that his word is not sufficient, that his grace is not sufficient, and that we know better than he does, and that we can save ourselves. And in doing so, we demonstrate that we have not received the good order of the gospel that comes by faith in Christ alone. And if you look carefully at verse 4 there in 1 Timothy, you'll see it. It says the good stewardship or good order that is from God by faith. You see, it is only God that can initiate good order in us. Only God, by His Spirit, through the work of Jesus, can give us faith in Him. Ephesians 2:8 and 9 speaks to this clearly. And it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. You see, it was by grace alone that we have been saved through faith, lest we should boast or have pride in ourselves. Paul goes on to write in in chapter 2 of Ephesians to remember that we were once strangers, but Christ broke down the barrier of the law that was separating us from God. And it is only through faith in Jesus because of his victorious death on the cross that we have access to the Father. It is only by the work of the Spirit that we can recognize our rebellion and submit to the authority of God in our lives. The Ephesians seem to have forgotten that faith in the good ordered gospel is the only path to God. There are those of us here in America, that seem to have forgotten that faith in the good ordered gospel by the work of Christ is the only path to God. And I can't tell you how often, even as someone who's been following Jesus for some time now, I need to be pointed to Christ and reminded to submit to his authority. And I was reminded of this this week as I was fretting and stewing over what I might say to you all this morning. That somehow if I said the right things or referenced the right verses, that by my power, by the words that I'm saying to you, I could somehow induce a change in some of you. Foolish and heretical man I am. I needed to be reminded of the truth of God's word, of the truth of the good order of the gospel. And it was actually my brother Nick this week that offered a gentle correction to me. He didn't even know it. But he was speaking the truth in love. And what he reminded me is that all we can do is our level best. And then we let the Holy Spirit do the work And sometimes I don't see the gospel clearly. Sometimes I forget that it is only God that can work on the human heart. And only God that can save. You see, way back in Genesis 3, our first mother and father rebelled against God's good order. And as a natural consequence, they were separated from God. And since then, all of humanity, you and I included, has chosen that same path. You and I were sinners far off from God, estranged from our Creator, living lives full of empty chaos, continuing to rebel against God's good order, enslaving ourselves to sin and death. But God, in His mercy, in order to restore that good order that He desires for us, has made a way for us to be reconciled. He loved His creation, you and I included, so much That he sent his beloved son, Jesus, to take on himself the punishment you and I rightly deserve because of our rebellion against the good order, because of our heresy. But in stepping in to take our place, Jesus also dealt a fatal blow to the enemies of God. You see, because the adversary could no longer hang our guilt and our shame over our heads anymore... Because our debt to the law had been paid, because our enemies were defeated, we were no longer slaves to sin and death. We have been set free by the blood of Jesus through faith in him. We could never break ourselves free no matter how hard we tried. But it is only faith and by faith that we are set free and made righteous. Jesus died so that we might be reconciled to the Father and reconciled to each other. By putting our faith in Jesus, we are telling the world that we know who our ultimate authority is and who is our eternal judge. God has chosen his church to be a people set apart, to reveal his glory to the world by exemplifying God's good order laid out in Scripture. We've been called to be set apart in our humble submission to Jesus as our king. And after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, he gave the Holy Spirit to the church that we might be convicted of our sin and reminded of all that Jesus taught us. And this gift causes us to submit to the authority of God's word and his church. And I wanted to make sure that the gospel was clear early in today's teaching because I wanted to impress upon you what was at stake for Timothy. What is at stake for us? This is not a trivial agree to disagree type of situation. And I don't say this hyperbolically, but this is literally a life and death situation. You have either chosen life by faith in Christ and submission to his word, even the parts that you don't like, or you are choosing continued rebellion and enslavement to sin and death. And if you're here this morning and you're ready to step into a relationship with Jesus in humble submission as your king by faith, I'd invite you to find one of the members here. Find one of us pastors here and let us know. We'd love to see you move from death to life and grow in ordering your life according to the gospel. And maybe you're here this morning and you've made Jesus your king and you're ready to make the next step to walk in obedience by being baptized into the church and to covenant with us to defend and preach the good news. And if this is you, I'd invite you to find one of the elders after the service. As brothers and sisters here at Mission, we exist to point each other to Christ. And we'd love to point you there as well. The good order of the gospel keeps heresy at bay and keeps us in right belief about God. Our second point this morning is this. The good order of the gospel results in love. The good order of the gospel results in love. And if you'll look at verse 5 with me, it says, back in First Timothy 1, The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the key verse to the whole text this morning. The goal of correcting heretics, of engaging in the hard work of sanctification, the goal of maintaining healthy doctrine is so that God's love may be more abundant in the church. You see, we don't hold orthodox beliefs just because that's what we've always done. We don't hold orthodox beliefs just so we can engage in theological snobbery, And we certainly don't hold these beliefs because it will make us more popular or give us more political power. The point of maintaining sound doctrine, the good order of the gospel, is so that God's love can shine through us. We'll see later in Timothy that the claim by these certain people was that the law was somehow being violated. But their argument is filled with lots of logical holes. And commentator R.W. Yarborough aptly sums it up by saying, and I quote, the opponents did not choose to follow heresy because it was intellectually more acceptable. They chose to abandon love. In other words, the root of this heresy was not an intellectual, but a moral problem, end quote. So Paul gets straight to the heart of the matter. He says, you'll know there is good order if there is love. Let's look at Matthew 22, 34 through 40 together. I just want to turn with me there. Matthew, just to the left in your Bibles, 22, 34 through 40. And Jesus has been challenging the religious leaders to live lives authentically submitted to the heart of God's word. And this has caused them to respond rebelliously and to harden their hearts against Jesus. So, in an attempt to undermine his prophetic voice and authority, they try to corner him with questions about the law. And we'll see some parallels here in this text with what Timothy was dealing with. So let's read this section together. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus, he takes their bait, but then he flips it back on them. He says, keeping the law is simple if you are zealously loving God and loving other people. He's telling them in a word to love. These religious leaders, like the folks in Ephesus, in that they were both using the law as an excuse, they were similar in that they were both using the law as an excuse to abandon love. So back in 1 Timothy, Paul is channeling Christ here when he tells Timothy the goal is love. If we are loving God well and loving other people well, we know that we are handling the law of God rightly. Paul breaks down the causes of love even further for Timothy. And I want to look at these three things that he lays out. Back in verse 5, it says The aim of our ch- charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. So the first thing is a pure heart. What does it mean to have a pure heart? The first thing that comes to mind is that our desires match up with what is good. There is no corruption in them. If something is pure, it is unmixed, unstained, untainted. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because we have been chosen by faith, we are free to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in doing the work of ridding the impurities of our heart. When we have a healthy respect and appreciation for who God is and his work on our behalf, then we can start to grow in holiness and having a pure heart. But if you're at all like me, though, even though I've been working at this for some time now, my heart is not completely pure. There are moments when pieces of that flesh, of that impurity pop up in my heart and it's not pretty. Sometimes my desires are self-serving. They're envious. Sometimes they're just plain sinful because it feels good. But that is where the stewardship inside the church and good doctrine assist me in cleaning those yucky parts out. Here's what Paul writes to another early church planter, Titus, in chapter 2 of his letter to him, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who is zealous for good works. You see, it is the grace of God that has started the work and is continuing the work of purifying us. Now I know that I will never arrive at 100% pure heart this side of heaven. But I know that the Spirit is at work in me when I read God's word and I learn more about God's character. Or when I get an encouragement from a brother or a sister inside the church about an area that I've been working on. Or when I get a gentle rebuke from the elders when I'm straying off the course. Good order, faithful stewardship of the gospel allows that growth in holiness to happen. And as one of your pastors and elders, as someone who desires to love this church well, This prayer is always on my heart. It's the prayer of David from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you asked God to do that? May God refine the impurities of our hearts and lead us closer to him. Second, in verse 5, we see a good conscience, a pure heart and a good conscience. What does it mean to have a good conscience? In a culture that is constantly vying for our attention and sending us all sorts of mixed messages, sometimes it can be hard to know right from wrong what is true and what is false. But we have the best helper, the best guide, the Holy Spirit. It's hard to imagine the disciples being better off without Jesus, but this is what he says in John 16. John 16, 7 and 8. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Christ lets his disciples know that it is actually to their advantage that he leaves them. Because then they will have the helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. A.K.A. what is right and wrong and the consequences of our actions. We have constant access to the Father because of the Holy Spirit. So a good conscience is one that is keeping in step with the Spirit. One that can stand before the throne of grace and claim the righteousness of Christ. Because as we discussed earlier, we can't earn our own salvation. We can't earn our own right standing before God. There's nothing we can do to become righteous. So a clean conscience has to come by the Spirit. But then there's also our cooperation with the Spirit. We are called by the Scriptures not to be stubborn or hard-hearted. We are called to keep in step with the Spirit. We are called to walk in the good works prepared for us. We are called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We are called to humbly accept correction. A clean conscience flows from one who lays their heart bare before the Lord, much like the reading of the Psalm 51 this morning said, Have mercy on me, wash me from my sin, and create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And I would invite each of us to consider if there is any sin we need to repent of this morning, any sin that we need to confess, and in addition to confessing that sin to the Lord, I'd invite you to find someone you trust in this church. Confess that sin to them. Invite them to hold you accountable. Allow the Holy Spirit to work through your brothers and sisters to help you keep your conscience clean before the Lord. Third in verse 5, Paul says that love comes from a sincere faith, a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. This is a faith that is genuine and confident. It is authentic and true. One commentator describes sincerity as being devoid of hypocrisy, and I love that definition. You see, this again has spilled over into our churches. Just this week, the largest evangelical denomination in our country gathered at its annual conference to elect new leadership. And the election and the business of that conference largely centered around the hypocrisy of that denomination around racism and sexual abuse. Paul's charge to Timothy was to protect the gospel And one of the primary ways he told him to do this was to make sure that hypocrisy was removed from the church. And this starts by taking some time to evaluate our own faith. Do we call out the speck in our neighbor's eye while we walk around with a log sticking out of our own eye? Take some time this week to look at your own faith. See if there are areas of hypocrisy that you need to repent from if we are vulnerable and honest about the things that we struggle with, if we are quick to repent and conscious of our own shortcomings, and if we graciously handle the struggles of our brothers and sisters, we can cooperate with the Spirit in making our church a place that is full of sincere faith that leads to love. When we humble ourselves and we put our trust in God to work in us and through us, we can grow in sincerity. In our own pride, we can do nothing. And so we rejoice, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, when we face various challenges so that the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, will be revealed at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. To restate Paul's main idea, commentator William Mounts puts it this way, The goal is love that comes from a heart cleansed of sin, A conscience clear of guilt, and a faith devoid of hypocrisy. Let's pick uh, up our text back in verse 6, and let's read that last portion again together. 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read through verse 11 again. Certain persons, by swerving from these, the things we just talked about, having wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying, Or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Here's our third point for this morning. The good order of the gospel keeps us on the narrow path. The good order of the gospel keeps us on the narrow path. These same certain people, by leaving the truth of the gospel, had wandered into vain discussion The implication of this text is that their discussions are fruitless. No good fruit is coming from it. They're rehashing settled debates because their desire is to be in some sort of authority instead of submitting to the authority of God's word. And this is like when my four-year-old comes up to me and says, Tom Brady's not the greatest goat of all time. How does suplex know? Or like when the kids in grade school class come up to me and they try to tell me that LeBron is better than MJ. These are vain discussions. These are settled debates. But these weren't trivial sports discussions they were having in Ephesus. The implication is that they were teaching these myths and genealogies as gospel truth in the church. Now, if you came up to me and said, Tom Brady isn't the greatest quarterback of all time, I'd probably tell you, I'm a little bit concerned about your salvation and stuff. (laughs) But if you came into this church and you told people that there was another gospel, another way that they could be saved, we'd be having a different discussion. And it wouldn't be just met with a clever dismissal. And my hope is that each and every member of this church would sternly rebuke you and call you to repentance. We need to zealously defend the good order of the gospel together, not just the leaders of the church, every one of us in this congregation. Because heretics, they don't prey on the strong. They prey on the weak or on the proud. And we'll see later in this book that these false teachers were targeting certain groups of people in the church and pulling them away a little at a time. And unless we want to see our brothers and sisters pulled away a little at a time, we need to work together to stay on the narrow path. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow path, for the path is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the path is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And those who find it are few. These false teachers got away from the gospel and they swerved off the path. How many of us have seen someone who was once active in their faith get sucked away by this heresy or that poor doctrine? I know that there are even some of you in this room. This is part of your testimony. You were once saved at a young age and zealous for God and his church. But the cares of this world, popular culture, politics, your sexuality, your kids, your career, they pulled you away and you swerved off the narrow path. But thanks be to God that you are here this morning and that God in his infinite mercy And grace has called you back into the family. What a beautiful picture Jesus paints for us in his parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We don't have time to go there this morning, but I would certainly commend that text to you for further study this week. When we swerve from the path, when our brothers and sisters swerve from the path, do we in the local church, by the authority given to us by God's word, act as a guardrail, Do we lovingly call our family back to the narrow path? And then do we rejoice when the lost return to the good order of the gospel? I know that we do. I've seen it. I got to rejoice with some brothers and sisters this week. And that brings us to the last point this morning. The good order of the gospel allows us to use the law lawfully, pointing us to Christ. The good order of the gospel allows us to use the law lawfully, pointing us to Christ. The heretics in Ephesus wanted to use the law to give them power, to hold it over the people. And as we saw earlier, they were hiding behind the law as an excuse to be unloving. But here's what's interesting Paul actually agrees with them that the law is good but only if it is used lawfully. It's a little redundant. But here's what it means. God's law laid out in the Old Testament is good because it reveals the character of God to his chosen people. And it helps them realize that there is absolutely no way we could ever come close to holiness and righteousness on our own. We all stand condemned under the law. And in fact, Paul connects that idea to the work of the Holy Spirit when he writes that the law is not laid out for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. He's contrasting those three couplets with those three parts of love that were described earlier. You see, a pure heart a clean conscience, and a sincere faith are the polar opposites of lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinful, and unholy and profane. We are justified by God's grace as a gift, and we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Jordan read us that perfect section from Romans 3 this morning that speaks to this. And then Timothy goes on with a list of, of heretical actions. And basically all he is doing is recapping the second half of the Ten Commandments. Now, this list includes every single human being at one point or another. And sometimes we see this list of sins and we want to debate the specifics of each included sin. But Paul didn't write this list as an exhaustive list or even to single out a specific sin or sinner. But because this text is often used in the debate about homosexuality, I want to offer just a very short observation as we wrap up our time this morning. The idea that we can live holy lives without submitting all of ourselves to Christ's rule including our sexuality, is false. When Christ calls us, he asks us first to count the cost. And then he asks us to pick up our cross and follow him. That cross is going to look different for different people. But the idea that our sexuality should be the thing that is allowed to be in rebellion to God's good order, The idea that our politics should be the thing that's allowed to be in rebellion to God's good order. The idea that our finances are the thing that should be allowed to be in rebellion to God's good order. It's just false. Every part of who we are, our sexuality, our politics, our familial relationships, our jobs, our marriages, our children have to be brought under submission to Christ, or we are lawless and disobedient, we are ungodly and sinful, we are unholy and profane. We don't get to pick and choose. And again, we're speaking to the church. Paul is writing to the church. And I want to be clear also that we are called to love and serve our communities with compassion and grace. Amen. This includes people that we know. People that we know and that we love very dearly who would identify themselves as LGBTQ+. And who are not walking with Christ as their king. Our job is not to condemn. Our job is not to judge. Our job is to point them to the good order of the gospel and how we love and serve them and model for them what living a life of humble submission to our king looks like. And so we welcome all folks here. And we invite everyone to hear the truth of God's word proclaimed. And we invite everyone to join us in submitting all of ourselves to the good order of the gospel. Paul's desire for the church of Ephesus is that they would protect the gospel and submit to God's work alone as its authority. Our desire in this church is the same. This is why as the final question in our membership conversations we ask the prospective members, are you ready to partner with us in defending the gospel witness and preaching of this church? I pray that we are. And so Mission Fellowship, may we be a church committed to the good order of the gospel and may the gospel lead us to right beliefs about God. May it cause us to grow in love By giving us a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. And may the God who created the universe, through his son Jesus Christ and the good order of the gospel, keep us on the narrow path and may it point us and draw us ever closer to our king, Jesus Christ. Amen.